everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 714 for the week of Monday, November 2nd, 2015. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulloch. Welcome, Gene. Hell, hell, the gang's all here. <laughs> Indeed they are. Welcome as well, Kat Robinson. My pleasure to be here as always. Hello, everyone. Welcome as well, Cassie Tamanini, a.k.a. Craftless. Hello, everybody, and hope you all had fantastic Halloweens. Ooh, they were spooktacular here. <laughs> I know. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Howdy, y'all. All right, so then, let's not waste any more time. Let's get right into things here, and uh, we're going to start with the International Space Station. The ISS has been quite busy lately, if I am not wrong, with spacewalks and some anniversaries and whole bunch of other things going on. So where do we begin with the ISS? Why don't we begin with today, Sawyer? Today marks a very important day in the history of that facility. Uh, about 15 years ago today, Expedition 1 boarded the International Space Station for the very first time, marking about 15 years since humans have been uh, inhabiting the orbiting platform. And... The current expedition up there, Expedition 45, participated in a little bit of a press conference to mark the day and to uh, kind of celebrate a little bit where the station's been, where it's currently going, and where its future may lie. There were a few questions from the press, not only from the uh, Johnson Space Flight Center, but also the Kennedy Space Center. Also, I believe, journalists from Russia, China, and Japan also participated in the event. But uh, there were a few key questions that were asked of the crew. And uh, Scott Kelly, who's the current uh, station commander, and I will go ahead and reiterate for the New Jersey contingent on the program, Mr. Kelly hails from the Great Garden State. <laughs> Bravo. In any story, any weird story, or any interesting story, for some reason or other, there's always a Jersey connection. So, and, and this is no different. Uh, it's better than the Florida connection where the story is usually going to be weird. <laughs> it's very true, Sawyer. Thank you. Anyway, uh, to, to continue, Scott Kelly was asked about what he thought the most important aspect currently of the uh, International Space Station is and what might be the best use of that facility. So, we're going to go ahead and play a cut for you from his answer. You know, we do a lot of experiments up here, but I think the uh, the most important experiment is the, you know, the space station as a, you know, an orbiting vehicle that keeps humans alive in space for long periods of time. We have a very uh, sophisticated life support system here. 
very sophisticated electrical system, and we, uh, you know, work with the ground and their, uh, you know, ability to, to uh, you know, maintain uh, this environment using a certain level of discipline and procedures and operations that is, you know, all of that is something we're going to need to explore uh, space, deeper into space for longer periods of time. So I think that's the best uh, utilization. And there's other benefits, many other benefits from the space station as well. But as far as, you know, long-term uh, exploration goals, that's the, uh, the most important aspect of it for me. Chell Lindgren, who's also one of the uh, U.S. astronauts currently participating in Expedition 45, also was asked the same question. In his eyes, where does he think the ISS is going currently? And what, in his impression, is what the ISS should be doing and, and what it really is all about? So uh, let's go ahead and, and hear his answer as well. And I absolutely agree with, uh, with Scott. I think the, the space station really is a, a bridge. It's a, a test bed for the technologies that we need to um, develop and understand in order to have a successful trip uh, to Mars. Um, of course, this is, a, this is an international laboratory. It's a place where we're conducting science and experiments. Over the time that uh, Kimi and Oleg and I are up here, we'll see 240 experiments. And, and I think Scott and Misha, um, during their one year in space, will see over 400 experiments. And, and a lot of those are critical, again, to our understanding of uh, how human physiology uh, adapts to um, this microgravity environment and the things that we need to do to protect uh, human health um, for a long trip uh, to Mars with respect to, to muscle, uh, bone, immune system, um, health, and, uh, and radiation health as well. After coming back from the IAC and hearing everyone talk about what was important to get people to Mars and so much of that from both Bolden, from Werner at ESA, was this concern about how astronauts' health would be affected on such long-duration missions. It's really interesting, you know, ISS has now been continuously occupied by humans for 15 years, which is a pretty significant amount of time. And I was looking over some of the, the milestones of the big numbers from the mission, and they've done 1,760 research investigations from researchers in more than 83 countries. In Expedition 1, they did 22 scientific investigations, but they said that there will be 191 investigations will be conducted during Expeditions 45 and 46. So not only have they been continuously doing science, but they've been able to find ways to do more science since they first inhabited the space station continuously in 2000. It's really just phenomenal. Gene, I think you mentioned either before in the pre-show, I can't recall, but the space station um, has had more than 220 people from 17 countries visiting. So we've talked so much on the show about how the next step in human exploration will have to be an international one, will have to be one that includes people from all over the world, investigations, investment, research from all over the world. And I think that the ISS has been in phenomenal and fantastic proving ground that international cooperation can and does work in space. Yeah, that was one of the things, too, that Scott Kelly also alluded to in another question, was the international aspect of this. He felt that uh, because it was an international partnership, it got them the entire project, essentially, through a lot of dark days, especially post-Columbia. So because of that international partnership, there was a lot of hard work that was done 
working to sustain the space station through all of that. And uh, that was one of the points that uh, Scott Kelly made. In fact, I think somebody else is talking about, too, moving the International Space Station up for the Nobel Peace Prize, which uh, has been talked about for a couple of years now and, quite frankly, I think might be a, a good idea. To kind of reiterate, too, Kat, what you were saying, we still have a long way to go with that research. In fact, the NASA IT office just recently issued a report about how we still need to do a lot of human physiology work to sustain crews for long periods of time, especially for a trip to Mars. There's still radiation concerns. There are still impacts of the central nervous system, possible cataracts, or even uh, uh, what the effects of extreme isolation might do. So we still have a lot of work to do in that aspect. And I think the ISS can, can really, really be a good factor in this. One of the things uh, Scott Kelly was asked too. now, we all have cars, and as Mark, you could probably allude to, even with aircraft, things break down over time, and, and I have a, an older vehicle and so on, and of course, you know, machines get cranky as they get older, just as much as we humans get kind of a little cranky as we get older, and things kind of fall apart, and as I'm finding out, meaning myself. Scott Kelly was also asked about the condition of the ISS and what his impressions of the current condition of the International Space Station are and what if he was you know, working more to maintain the facility on this run than his previous run. So, uh, And Scott had a pretty good answer for that one. So, Cassie, if you can run that clip for me. Well... The last time I was here was uh, about five years ago, four or five years ago, and it doesn't seem to me like I'm doing any more maintenance on the space station than we did then. So, and, and that was, a, you know, basically a third of the, the lifetime ago for, for human occupation of the, the space station. Um, I thought when I got on board this time, the material condition of the space station was very good. Um, but, you know, obviously as things age, you know, over time we're going to have more uh, maintenance requirements. But, you know, the good news is we plan for that. We have a lot of spares on board, spare parts, spare parts outside. We have, uh, you know, plans for, for changing those things and, uh, you know, keeping this space station flying a long time into the future. Yes, yeah, so apparently that's not a huge issue right now from what I'm, I am hearing. As, if I recall, with Mir, the time that the Russians were taking to go ahead and do a lot of maintenance along that period of time with Mir, that maintenance time was increasing. And uh, so far, it hasn't increased all that much on the International Space Station, which might be good for its longevity. And, Kat, you were just at IAC. I'm sure there was some discussion, too, about ISS and its longevity. We've just hopped on the uh, 2024 bandwagon, it may have enough to go to 2028, but... Uh, yeah, they, so they did discuss, you know, there definitely was some discussion of, of how long the ISS... There was also a lot of discussion on how systems reliability would have to greatly improve for long-term missions that while uh, the ISS is performing well and continues to perform well, its systems aren't reliable enough now for deep space missions. And again, that's something we need to work on. And hopefully the International Space Station will continue to be that kind of test bed where we can indeed develop systems that uh, can be that reliable that we can really, really trust them 
on long-range trips. So again, that points out to the International Space Station and the need to test a lot of things on our, our journey to Mars. One of the things that Scott Kelly was asked about was the possibility of a commercial space station. Some of the talk is that after ISS is uh, over and done with, we want to go ahead and, and have commercial companies take over low Earth orbit. Can commercial companies develop something that big as far as the International Space Station is concerned? Or does uh, will we need to develop smaller facilities but still have some research going on? Here's Scott Kelly's answer to that. You know, to build a commercial space station like this space station, you know, and the and the cost involved will, you know, obviously, you know, it's going to be really expensive. But, and and I'm, I wouldn't say it's not possible, but, uh, you know, if someone wanted to build something like this and had the money and, uh, you know, had the, the, the reason behind it, I think NASA and our international partners have proved that it's very doable and to keep it flying for long periods of time. What I would envision that's, you know, probably the more likely case is, is a, you know, a smaller space station, more, uh, maybe more focused on, uh, you know, certain, certain, you know, more focused goals. Um, and it's something that I would really, you know, love to see someday. It's be, be fantastic to have researchers maybe, you know, you know, of all different, uh, uh, flavors and, uh, you know, many different people be able to go to the, the space station and do their research and also for people to go uh, go there just to experience, uh, you know, the majesty of space and, and looking out at the earth and, the, you know, the privilege, uh, you know, we have up here to do that. So it looks like Scott Kelly is saying, yeah, let's go full throttle with commercial space and and see if commercial companies can come up with new facilities for experimentation or even for manufacturing. And it sounds to me that the door is open a little bit for an orbiting hotel there for people just to come up and take a look at, as he said, the majesty of spaceflight. So uh, happy anniversary, happy crystal anniversary to the International Space Station. Yes, indeed. And uh, here's hoping it continues running for many years longer. We know that it's currently scheduled till at least 2024, but hey, that may always change and extend further outward. You never know. But in the meantime, 15 years of continuous occupation aboard the International Space Station is pretty impressive. So well done to all the countries around the world involved. Speaking of the International Space Station, you may know one of the resupply vehicles, well, both resupply vehicles from the United States to the International Space Station have had some failures. The most notable being the explosion a little over a year ago out of Wallops Island, Virginia, that being the Antares Orb 3 mission. Well, their Orb 4 mission is scheduled to launch in December of this year aboard an Atlas V from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. But I believe we have some more information now going back to the original cause and some updates on Antares. Gene? Thanks, Sawyer. Again, um, OA-4, which is the next mission for Orbital ATK, is currently slated for December 3rd, 2015, which is just around the corner. Just recently, there was a uh, third quarter conference call between um, Orbital ATK and its uh, stockholders. And part of the discussion was where we're at with those launch efforts. And David Thompson, the uh, CEO of Orbital ATK, had a few words to say where they are with that and where they are with the current Cygnus program and what their launch schedule is going forward. There was some a little reshuffling in that launch schedule. 
So why don't we go ahead, uh, Cassie, and play that clip from uh, David Thompson there explaining where we are at currently with the launch schedule on uh, Antares in the Atlas V that's going to be carrying Cygnus. The uh, March uh, launch is now definitely uh, booked on an Atlas V. The current schedule, I believe, has that launch taking place uh, around the 10th of March. Um, there, there had been some uncertainty up through a month or so ago about the availability of an Atlas V during that time period, and so we were maintaining uh, the uh, Antares schedule to go with its launch in March if the Atlas was not available, um, but, uh, but it turned out it was, so, so we'll, the sequence of events will be uh, in early December, December 3rd is the current date. Uh, we'll launch uh, on an Atlas V, uh, uh, then um, roughly um, 100 days after that, on March 10th or thereabouts, another Atlas V launch, both those taking place from Cape Canaveral. And then um, uh, pretty much as soon as we can be ready to go, as soon as we've completed that March mission, um, the, the next launch uh, will occur, this one, with an, uh, on an Antares from uh, Wallace Island, and right now we're aiming for early May for that launch. And then that will be followed uh, before this time next year in late September or early October with um, another Antares launch. Uh, so those four uh, together will, uh, will substantially uh, complete our cargo delivery uh, uh, commitments under the original uh, CRS contract. Then we'll have th three more extension missions under that contract that will take place in 2017 and early 2018 before we hopefully move into the new uh, CRS2 contract that uh, you know we, we're, we're uh, anxiously awaiting uh, NASA's decision on uh, in the coming weeks. And that decision, by the way, from what I understand, could come as early as this coming week as we record this. Uh, so keep your ears peeled, so to speak. We might be able to go ahead and hear something about that, uh, about the uh, second round of cargo contracts quite shortly. So it does look like OA-4, which is the next Cygnus launch, uh, will be launched from the Kennedy Space Center on board an Atlas V. From what I've heard uh, from NASA, that the Cygnus has been moved in from a stacking position to an upright position, stacking meaning horizontal. They were just going ahead getting all the gear on board. And now I understand uh, that vehicle is now moved to the vertical position and is getting ready for uh, boarding on, onto the Atlas V. There were some other questions, too, with reference to scheduling where we are with any type of scheduling challenges or any technical challenges, keep in mind, too, that the OA-4 Cygnus is not the same Cygnus that we've been flying uh, through Orb-1 and Orb-3. This is the first flight of the enhanced Cygnus. It is a little bit larger than the uh, cargo vehicle that they have been flying previously. It also has some different uh, solar arrays on board. The solar arrays that are being used are actually the round solar arrays that actually were destined at one point for the Orion spacecraft, and now they're currently going to be uh, leveraged by Cygnus. 
Orion, as you all know, is not going to be uh, using the U.S. main service module. It is going to be using a derivative of the ATV from Europe. So those uh, circular solar panels didn't have home until they were picked up by Orbital ATK. So, Cassie, if you could play that one cut, please. Well, from a schedule standpoint, I believe there's one more Atlas V ahead of us, which is due to go, I think, at the uh, the end of this week. Uh, Assuming that goes uh, on schedule, then um, I think both the launch vehicle hardware from ULA and and the Cygnus spacecraft and its cargo on our side are, are in good shape. And so I, I don't see any uh, any significant schedule uh, risk to an early December launch. From a technical standpoint, there are uh, some enhancements that have been implemented on this Cygnus spacecraft that uh, will continue on uh, to be used on all future ones. Uh, so it's not a, an identical spacecraft to the ones that we've launched in the past. And anytime you have uh, uh, new uh, subsystems or any any changes from prior um, uh, prior uh, missions, you know you always spend a little extra time uh, concentrating on those things that are new. Uh, I think we've done that, and so we're confident that uh, that Cygnus will perform uh, uh, well on on its uh, next launch uh, in December and and on all the launches coming up after that. So they're fairly confident that this new vehicle will perform and perform well. And I know personally I'm looking forward to seeing not only Cygnus back in the air, but also getting the U.S. cargo missions back up and flying again. This will be the first return to flight mission. Hey, Mark, you had something you wanted to go ahead and add from uh, another company that's also vying for cargo missions. That's right. Uh, October 16th when I was down at Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex for the Innovation Expo. I uh, talked to the representatives from Sierra Nevada Corporation, and I, you know, once again, I got to admit, I miss a ton of news. I really miss way, way, way more than I should. However, talking to them, I became aware that there's a Dream Chaser cargo and that they're in the running for this next uh, ISS commercial cargo award. And uh, again, they confirmed what you said. They hope to hear something possibly as soon as as this week. And they showed me some of the images they've got. And they talked about uh, the Dream Chaser being capable of returning a significant amount of mass from orbit to the ground, to the runway. And I thought, whoa, I like that fantastic thing for experiments. Yeah, exactly. I mean, another possibility, too, if I ever recall exactly, that SNC was promoting the unpiloted Dream Chaser, which is, by the way, completely autonomous, as a X-37B alternative as well. So uh, there's some possibilities for Dream Chaser in the future as well, but I'm very much looking forward to seeing uh, Orbital ATK back in the air again with Cygnus and looking forward to seeing this swan spread her wings after a dormant year and uh, uh, looking forward to also seeing another bird of a different feather, the SpaceX Falcon 9, also get moving, I understand too. They they also want to launch and I believe that's also coming up toward mid-December. So it's going to be a very busy, busy, busy time in space like cargo. So brace yourself, folks. It's going to be kind of fun. 
I gotta say, I think that the concept that Dream Chaser could actually bring more stuff back, I guess uh, there's a lot of experiments I'm watching right now that we literally don't know when they're going to come back because they have to get a ride on something that can bring it back, which basically comes down to Soyuz. And it's really hard to book space on that for experiments to come home. So I, I would love to see a vehicle that could actually return cargo from this country sooner rather than later. Are we using Progress anymore? I understand. I thought that the U.S. had decided not to use Progress at all now. Well, I don't only watch U.S. experiments either. Like that Japanese Centauri experiment that I was talking about right. a few episodes back, um, That it, they don't know when the two-year samples are going to come back. They have a specific time frame that they need to try and get them back in, but they don't have a flight back yet. So it's not just a U.S. thing. The whole world needs ways to get cargo back. <laughs> right. And in terms of U.S. things, though, too, uh, there are private companies like NanoRacks. They have space as well. Exactly. Up I believe all... Uh, resupply vehicles, including progress. Yep. 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 So. So yeah, it's you know, I mean, it's there's there's so many projects from all over the world, from private and government agencies. So, yes, I think having another vehicle, another way to get things back, I think it can actually really help ramp up the use of it as a science laboratory. Yeah, indeed. I mean, we need the downmass ability, and it's something we lost uh, after we uh, decommissioned shuttle. So firmly agree. Right now, the only vehicle that does offer downmass capability is the cargo dragon. And if you're going to go ahead and see if you can you can find room in the descent module in Soyuz, so it's super critical that we get uh, both uh, dragon flying again and we get another vehicle getting ready for downmass. But the big plus with this new version of uh, Cygnus is that it gives us a lot of upmass ability. Um, that's also a good thing. And you still need something to take the trash out. So Cygnus will go ahead and do that. And plus, I believe it's on the fifth mission, somebody can check me on this, that uh, they're actually going to put it on board a camera and watch, essentially watch the spacecraft disintegrate to learn more about how these things break up in the atmosphere and, and figure out, too, how we can build uh, better satellites that will sort of destroy themselves on re-entry and make sure that you know none of it reaches the ground, which, by the way, is another would be a real big plus when we keep designing satellites better. Exactly. Well, the importance of resupply missions aboard the ISS is not lost, and that's why we are continuing to get all these resupply missions back up and running. And, of course, Talking Space will be covering OA-4 from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, so expect a special episode from that in December pending a launch. Okay then, moving along. Our next story is, well, I guess a little bit about America and a little bit about the world. It involves the Center for American Progress and one NASA administrator, Charlie Bolden. Well, what do they have to do with each other? I'll let Gene tell you. Thanks, Sawyer. Well, Charlie Bolden was uh, speaking to the Center of American Progress last week, and uh, he indicated that, well, I don't know if this is an accurate statement or not, but he indicated that if the journey to Mars is not basically taken up by the next administration, that the agency as a whole may have some problems. And his, his exact quote is, essentially, the agency is doomed if the next president does not adopt the journey to Mars roadmap. He's quoted the saying, quote, President Obama has set us on a visionary course. It is my sincere hope that the future leaders from all sides of the political spectrum see it through. We have to stay focused. If we change our minds at any time, 
in these next three or four years, which is always a risk when you go through a government transition, my belief is that we are doomed, close quote. And I think he's absolutely got a very valid point there because one, funding is contingent on public interest and the public no longer has any patience, in my opinion, for changing direction on our space program every several years. I think a lot of people were really upset with the cancellation of Constellation, whether or not it was for valid reasons, and that can be argued in different places and different times on different shows. But the public is interested in going to Mars. In fact, a very interesting opinion that they published alongside having Bolden there to speak to them was that in order for this to succeed, that we need to forge a new national consensus on what America's place in space should be. So I think Bolden, you know, Mike's on hearts, but I think he had a very, a very good point because we can't afford, our space program can't afford to cancel yet another program or to retool or have to request new directions. Or especially spend $2 billion canceling another freaking program. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. We, yeah, really I mean, have to, we really have to commit to the project that we want. And right now, we have made a commitment to the journey of Mars. NASA has made the commitment to the journey of Mars. And it's like when we were down in Florida for EFT-1, and I spoke with Ricky Reynolds, and he said these are generational projects. Generational projects require generational commitment. That's been the whole problem. I believe, uh, Cassie, if you recall, you were, were you there at, uh, at Neef this past year with us? I was at Neef. Okay. I don't know if I was at the talk you're talking about. <laughs> Associate Administrator Bill Gerstenmeyer also gave a talk to us there, and he wanted to emphasize, too, that this isn't sort of a, a timetable-driven mission. This is a, as Kat, you alluded to, this is sort of a generational thing where it's hatched over here, but it may take a little while. And Gerstenmeyer emphasized this. They do intend to continue the road as long as there's money to do it. Even if there isn't money to do it, they're still going to go ahead and try to see what they can, what NASA can do with the budget it has. And I mean, Grant, well, and the, planetary it, society, the Planetary Society commissioned a report that showed that the NASA's journey to Mars is feasible under current funding, including inflation, as long as NASA's funding remains stable. So meaning that we don't cut NASA's budget significantly and it's adjusted for inflation. Well, that's, that's, those are two big. Also uh, meaning that there's not too much shifting. Yeah. Well, and also if there's not too much shifting around in the budget, because I mean, luckily this is a program within NASA that has a lot more popular support. Human spaceflight is always what gets people the most jazzed up, but well that and Mars rovers. <laughs> and that's really lucky because, you know, they love messing around with the internal NASA budget too. So there's so many factors. And of course the reality is, is that in a way our space program is on an eight year cycle at most four to eight year cycle, because the problem is that our president sets the direction so much. And I feel like this particular speech was actually Mostly, I feel like, for the benefit of Hillary Clinton. 
I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go go into doubt. Well, Donovich I just mean because it's the center for uh, American progress. But, it's it's the liberal it's, it's, it's also think it's tank, you know. Well, not to go into politics when we're talking about NASA's budget. Because yeah, budget is, <laughs> it's all uh, politics. I'm, 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 <laughs> but I'm not. What I'm saying is I'm not going to go into presidential. I'm not going to go into pre- presidential I, election I, I, here. But it's a very valid point because the Center for American Progress is also very involved in the White House. Uh, when I was at the White House just a little bit over a year, year and a half ago. Half of the people there helping to facilitate the discussion I was invited in on were from the Center for American Progress. So it's pretty. They're cool. the heritage foundation of the like progressive side. They're, okay, so, so, they, so, so they hugely affect policy amongst liberal yeah, politicians. Absolutely. Okay, this so this is specifically a speech to liberals. To put yeah, us back on course. I, I to put us back on course then, and 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 to use this as a jumping off point, then fine, I'll go down this path. So far, Hillary Clinton has not mentioned a darn thing about space, and Bernie yep. Sanders has has said, oh, he'll support science and science research, but has always voted down the NASA budget. So you know, let's we'll, be, we'll let's start be from that point. Realistic here. NASA is never going to be a centerpiece of any United States presidential election in today's atmosphere. The candidates, when we get to like the main debates between the Republican and the Democratic nominees, we might get one or two throwaway questions that will either talk about science, but probably in terms of science education. They might talk about technology and, and innovation, and maybe, just maybe, we'll get a NASA question. But Cassie's point that she was making is that this speech you know, Bolden's choice to go speak at this particular moment, at that particular location, in that particular group, was really, he's, he's specifically targeting an audience there. And he's targeting an audience he think might have an impact on, on NASA's policy in the next year. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I was just saying in the sense of he's laying a foundation for the possibilities for the future, because the truth is, if he's going to be, if he's administrator through this transition, regardless of who the candidate is, he's going to have to be dealing with whoever is the president, whoever ends up being president. I will say Bolden has said, and I think it's some way he's trying to speak a legacy into it, because Bolden said very consistently exactly right. he is. He has gone with Obama's administration that he... Okay, that's what I thought, Obama. but I wasn't sure. So I, I think I was he was really trying to set up, you know, a legacy and really saying that that we need to we need to build a legacy for NASA. You know, we've had an Apollo legacy and that was generationally changing, you know, a world milestone. NASA needs to be at the forefront of the next world milestone in space exploration. Well, my my problem right now currently is we've had about I, I don't know countless countless programs that have gone by the wayside. We've had the Space Exploration Initiative under uh, President Bush, Bush forty one. We've had let me see a program that I think Lockheed Martin had instituted that went away under President Bill Clinton. That was a venture star. We had a, also the uh, the uh, HL twenty, which is now the Dream Chaser. We also yeah. had we well, are, yeah, we, so we we're, we're very familiar with this, and I think that that was the right. whole point that Bolden was making this speech because he's arguing that we need the president, no matter who the president is, needs to invest in generational legacy building projects for NASA. Right, and I think I mean that that's pretty much what this speech was and what he was trying to do. And if you look at the follow-up from the Center for American Progress, they're building into that idea that 
we need American buy-in. We need public consensus because we need to find a project that becomes NASA's project and stays NASA's project no matter who the administration is. Ultimately, we need to, and I've said this a few times on the program, ultimately we need to go ahead and figure out how a space program fits into a constitutional republic like ours. And we haven't really fully answered that question yet. And uh, until we do, we're still going to have these problems. And that, that's, that, that's a challenge that uh, needs to be taken up. I don't by know that it has so much to deal with with the type of government, but more or less our government's commitment to science, technology, and innovation. That's where I'm getting, that's what I'm getting at, and, and we need to figure but out. But that doesn't really have thing. much to do with what type of government we have. Well, yeah, it kind of does, because we, we've never really, we've never really answered that question, and we need to. I, as, as the political scientist of this group, I will respectfully disagree. And I will respect your opinion, but uh, I will keep it at that. <laughs> we'll move on. But yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be tough to figure out what you're going to do, given given the budgetary cycles and given the fickle nature of budgets and so on and so forth. It's going to be awfully difficult. It's going to be a grand challenge. I'll just say one thing about the politics thing. Just be glad that we don't have a straight up vote kind of democracy, because then we would get no support for space. That's absolutely 100% true. And, you know, unfortunately, the space budget and NASA's budget are more casualties of the general budget than of anything else. Mm-hmm. Well, then, uh, I'm going to stay out of this political <laughs> conversation, and uh, I'll leave that to viewers if anybody wants to touch that subject with a 10-foot pole. But if you do, <laughs> or best, you know how to get in contact with us. You can tweet it at us at Talking Space, <laughs> facebook.com slash Talking Space, or send it all in a long, strongly worded email to mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. Somehow we will read it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Moving right along. <laughs> okay, then. So let's move as far away as possible from this topic. And uh, I would say that Enceladus is pretty far away, right? Nice yes. segue, uh, Sawyer. I try. Okay, anyway. Far. <laughs> let's talk about Enceladus, then. This is, I was so excited about this. Unfortunately, I couldn't follow the entire process live because it happened on my uh, Wednesdays, which are very difficult and long days full of classes for me. But um, Cassini Saturn, which has been orbiting in Saturn for some time and has sent back lots of exciting data, pictures, beautiful, beautiful pictures of Saturn's rings, among other things, I just happen to love the pictures of the rings, but they had a very close flyby of one of Saturn's moon, Enceladus, and the goal of this flyby was actually to travel through one of the plumes uh, that emit from the moon. Enceladus is a moon that has a very large ocean underneath uh, an icy crust, and due to the effects of tidal heating, there are plumes um, that that uh, ocean comes out through the surface and, and emits into space, and Cassini-Saturn was able to fly through one of those plumes, and one of the goals of that was to measure the makeup of that ocean to see whether or not it could be a type of makeup that is hospitable to life, specifically microbial life, but any sort of life. Uh, Cassini-Saturn can't actually measure whether or not or detect if life is there. The spacecraft is able to do some really cool measurements on, on the chemical makeup of that water to find out whether or not it is that ocean is something that could support the type of microbial life that we see here on Earth and in some of our deep oceans. 
wow. Just I'm just thinking if Enceladus, that whole first off that entire system, both Saturn and and there's some hopes for uh, some planets around Jupiter as well. I mean, we're talking about a mini solar system in, in and of itself that is just absolutely fascinating and and deserves a lot of uh, a lot of attention, a lot of study. I'm hoping at some point in time we do decide to go ahead and, and land there and try to see if we can cut through all that ice and see what's going on underneath. Because I think what might be going on underneath it, maybe nothing or who knows. We might be fortunate enough to have something looking back at our camera. So we'll have to find out and, and, uh, and keep plugging away. But it just, just the idea of looking for life elsewhere in our solar system there's still some hopes for Mars. There's still some hopes for Titan, and there's there's hopes here. And uh, it's really, I mean, it's really such a fascinating thing. The flyby came within uh, 50 kilometers of Enceladus's surface, and we just have gotten, you know, over the the last several days, some of the pictures from that, and they are just beautiful. I mean, this was a really close flyby, and and kind of a daring <laughs> sort of yeah. thing for Cassini Saturn to do. So. I'm not exactly sure. I was trying to see when we'll get the data back on actual the plume that they passed through. I'm not quite sure when that'll be. I know that we've gotten images back and expect to get more, but it will be really exciting once we hear about what's in the plume that erupts from the surface of Enceladus. I'm just, it's really exciting. And it's really cool to see Cassini Saturn do so much science, even though it, it's been there for a while. You know, it's been at Saturn for a while. It's done lots of interesting and fascinating and scientifically important and relevant things at Saturn. And it's just really cool when you when you can still see spacecraft that's still making these types of measurements that can just get you really excited about what's next or, or what could be out there. Indeed, Cassini is almost close to the end of its mission, too. And when that day comes and we, and we lose that spacecraft, ah, oh. But it, we will continue to build on, on the data that we've received from it and just the mountains of photographs and, and images that we receive from that spacecraft. So it will have one heck of a legacy going forward. And just an FYI for folks listening, I believe this week sometime NASA is going to plan on a press conference to figure out where the atmosphere has gone around Mars or what may have happened to it. Mars still has an atmosphere, one that we still need to punch through to land, but uh, it used to be a much better and thicker atmosphere. Than something yeah, and I just want to uh, interject, I, I checked because I knew I had seen it somewhere, and it'll be several weeks until they get all the data from the uh, dust and gas a analysis on board of Cassini. So uh, hopefully before the end of the year, we'll get some information, but if not, it'll be very exciting discussion information for the next season of Talking Space. Indeed, I smell follow-up. I smell sequel. Anyway, <laughs> so that's amazing with uh, Cassini. Uh, that has been a phenomenal mission through all these years. It's just fed back amazing data. If you ever get to see information about it, Carolyn Porco is a great person with Cassini and this kind of stuff. There's just so much out there. So take a look at Cassini and see the research it's been doing all around Saturn, Enceladus, and all of the other moons, too. Uh, I think we've had our time away from Earth. I think we can head back kind of closer to the Earth, at least. And this story involves Russia and putting a whole group of women together in a small space for eight days. And despite what you may have read about this, it has nothing to do to see if who will get into a catfight or if they can live without makeup. 
boy, that gets me mad when people. They sent a bunch like of that. girls from Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're not. They are. They are all scientists from Russia. Uh, this is really when I I saw this in the news. It's kind of exciting because uh, while at IAC, I was able to attend the Women in Aerospace Europe annual uh, Women in Aerospace Breakfast that they have um, at the IAC, and they had several fantastic people who were there to speak, including NASA's Associate Administrator, Devin Newman. Uh, but at the end of that breakfast, we were treated to a surprise. In fact, they said it was so surprising they didn't even know whether or not they would be able to talk about it there, talking about this Luna 2015 mission, which is a simulation of an eight-day lunar mission that is an all-female crew, and the reason they chose to go through an all-female crew is because there has been very limited studies that focus on just the effects of space, uh, the psycho and physiological effects of space and uh, longer-duration space missions on solely women, because many of these missions and many of the studies when we first went into space were conducted on men, and they were all male-only experiments. And so they are currently underway. They went in to their eight-day simulation on 28 October, and it will last for eight days. So they are just a little bit over halfway through now. And this is just the first. Actually, Luna 2015 is part of a uh, larger effort to study the effects of lunar missions that Russia is doing uh, in conjunction with several other Russian agencies uh, in preparation for their announced planned uh, lunar missions. They hope to land in, I believe, the late 2020s, 2029. And Luna 2015 is actually just a successor. They hope by 2017 to be doing the same sorts of experiments of a little bit longer duration with uh, mixed gender crews. So something that was really cool to hear about and uh, really great to see an emphasis on how women handle these issues, but also great to see the emphasis on studying a mixed gender crew uh, because as we heard in our last show, or you will hear that uh, if you ask the women astronauts themselves, they'll tell you that spacesuits and spaceships don't see gender. Just to follow up here real fast, I believe NASA's also gone down this path as well. There was a set of missions, the, uh, the HERA missions. I believe HERA stands for, if I can pull this up, Human Exploration Research Analog, close quote. Um, and if, so can you know the name of the female goddess? Exactly. And so far, there have been, I believe, a handful of missions that have been flown out there. In fact, a friend of mine, uh, Aaron Beisner, was on board HERA-2. And I believe that was a little bit longer than what the Russians had planned to do. I, I don't exactly remember the exact time frame. And I think but that they are specifically speaking to the Russian context, because this is a Russian-funded Russian mission, um, you know, there have been, you know, as you pointed out, the HERA missions, but they are uh, specifically speaking to their own context and all the uh, research that was done there was done on men. Yeah, my question uh, for the Russians is, are they talking to NASA at all because of the experience NASA's had with the HERA missions? And to see after this particular mission's over, maybe compare notes and, and try to do better. That. It's uh, just just a uh, uh, just plain devil's advocate. It'd be interesting to find out. Okay, then we'll be following this mission closely and see. It's not all about men in science. Finally, the gender gap is starting to disappear. We're involving women more. Science is for everybody, and it affects everybody, and everybody needs to know that. 
And I think that's a perfect lead into how science affects everybody and this week's spinoff. Cassie, what do we have? Well, yes, you know, since we were discussing closed simulations and female crews, I thought I'd run with that theme and highlight a woman-owned space company. In fact, the very first, at least from everything I've read, she certainly calls herself the first female space entrepreneur. And this would be Paragon Space Development Corporation, which probably a lot of you have heard of. They have their hands in everything. But this story is a little bit different than our usual spinoffs because choosing just one spinoff from this company is pretty much impossible. You might remember back in the early 90s, a crew of eight spent two years in a habitat near Tucson called Biosphere 2. It ran into a bunch of issues, um, low oxygen levels, the crew was hallucinating, they had to break the simulation to pump in more oxygen. But over the two years that they spent in this habitat, these eight people, Two of them happened to fall in love, Jane Pointer and Tabor McCallum, and they married nine months after Biosphere 2 and started Paragon Space Development Corporation. Now, interestingly, neither had attended college, neither had any formal training in science, engineering, or business, but they had passion, determination, real-world training, thanks to Biosphere 2, and a great eye for talent. They teamed up with engineer Grant Anderson, formerly of Lockheed Martin, and he had experience developing spaceflight hardware there. And so they all formed Paragon together. Initially, they worked on a group project with NASA experimenting with ecological systems aboard Mir, which was called the Autonomous Biological System. And it was a closed environment with small aquatic invertebrates and plants that proved they could live and produce in space, like live out a full life cycle. And according to NASA, the ABS has proved to be adaptable to different flight environments, including the Progress Space Shuttle, Mir, and the International Space Station, and has displayed a robust ability to recover from unplanned events. The ABS has been successfully adapted to support red shrimp, freshwater amphipod, and mosquito fish, demonstrating its ability to be used with various species in space. Now, from there, they moved on to more complex creatures, humans, and they worked with commercial partners. They've worked with NASA all along on things like spacesuits and various life support systems. They're partners with SpaceX for the commercial crew development program. They have also gotten involved with space tourism. And so they're a very popular supplier to the aerospace industry. And they're also one of America's fastest growing small businesses. They're on the Inc. 500 pretty much every year. In addition, Dennis Tito, space tourist and entrepreneur, brought them into his Inspiration Mars project, and there's speculation that if he's successful in launching a private mission to boomerang around Mars in 2021, Pointer and McCallum could be the first couple to fly by Mars. It's probably never going to happen, but that's the speculation. So they pretty much have their hands in everything. But most interestingly, they made something called the Paragon Dive System. The U.S. Navy was seeking a new diving suit that could protect their divers in war. Between high-pressure deep diving, toxic chemicals, extreme water temperatures, naval divers put themselves here on Earth in many of the same risky situations as astronauts. So McCallum had once been, before Biosphere 2, was a salvage diver and had been caught in a leaky suit himself. So he jumped at the opportunity, got the contract with the Navy, and used Paragon to create a new diving suit. And so they applied their understanding of airflow in a spacesuit helmet and how to, and using an umbilical as support, cooling undergarment systems to regulate temperature, computer codes for airflow analysis, and 
McCallum also figured out there's a few spots in a in the current dry suits that the Navy uses and that salvage divers use that tend to leak. And so he tested hundreds of materials with jet fuel and found ways to seal those right up. And his other great invention was to use lower pressure tubing to naturally suck the exhaled air up to the surface. And according to the Navy contaminated water diving program manager at the time of prototype testing, it's unique among all dive suits and it's a very efficient system. So these new naval suits, they created a bunch of them for testing and they were tested both without people in them and then they had human rated prototypes that actually had tests with humans in them. This was all done at a US Naval testing facility and everything's been working so well. And they figured out that basically the US taxpayer could save a lot of money if they could retrofit the old suits with the new technologies. So they just got another SBIR grant in 2014 to make them retrofitable to current dive suits. But what I find really exciting is beyond the Navy, if they successfully complete all tests and this technology turns out to work, they could also be sold to companies that clean up toxic spills, salvage wrecks, clean up after natural disasters. All of those are extremely hazardous occupations, diving in those conditions, especially because you can't be sure if water is contaminated just by vision. And usually to a disaster, you have to respond before you can really test the water. So people have to get right in that water. These suits could improve and save the lives of first responders and also make response even quicker. Yeah, Cassie, I'm looking at their website right now for those who want to go ahead and take a look. It's uh, paragonsdc.com. Um, they've, uh, I'm looking at their current projects. They've got a lot of, a lot of things going on. One of them is, I believe they're, they're working in concert with Oceaneering to develop one of the flight suits. I believe also, too, they have their hands in the uh, Boeing uh, CSD-100 Starliner. Uh, yep. They do work uh, on the uh, uh, passive thermal control systems for Orion, mm -hmm. and they're with our dear friends Mars One. They developed, well, at least gave them some advice on some of the uh, environmental systems that they're going to need. So they've got some very interesting uh, things going on over there. Uh, they're also part of another group called Worldview, which is uh, instead of blasting people off in rockets to go ahead and see the edge of space, they are putting them into a balloon uh, of Felix Baumgartner, but not having them jump out and returning them back home in, in this uh, nice little gondola. So they've really got their hands on a lot of stuff. So. Um, Nice find, seriously. I'm just really excited about this because I've been to the biosphere too because I did my undergraduate in Arizona at the University of Arizona and they currently own biosphere too. And they have this whole like little exhibit about the two scientists who fell in love and I had no idea of the connection. So now I'm just, that's really exciting. So it's a pretty cool spinoff, Cassie. Well, and I also should mention that they designed the life support system for Alan Eustace's jump that bra that broke Felix Baumgartner's jump. Ah, oh, <laughs> I, like, I knew the name was familiar. 
Yeah, they're, I mean, they really, they are one of the, actually one of the most important commercial space companies very quietly because they're the people behind the scenes. They're the people behind the other companies. Like they're working with SpaceX, they're working with Boeing, they're working, they work with everybody and they provide materials and they do so much testing for the rest of the industry, testing out concepts. And they have 70 employees and I, what I found amazing is, like me, you know, they didn't go to college, <laughs> and here they are at the cutting edge of space technology with, you know, they just went from high school to into being adventurers, and it led them into being one of the most up-and-coming space companies around, and that's an incredible journey. And they also said, I read an article in Wired about them where their employees were saying they, they hire not for like your typical resume, they hire for talent and they figure they can train you to do whatever they need, you know, within reason, they can train you in how to do stuff. As long as you are enthusiastic and you have passion and you have a brain, they'll turn you into the best you can be. And that's the best that could be said about any employer, I think. And the, you know, whole helping humanity thing doesn't stink either. It really doesn't. And they're really, they have a bunch of spinoffs. They're, they're, so much of their technology can apply on Earth. They have a real focus on space. But whenever they do turn to our planet, they're really creating some great stuff. And it's just spinoff after spinoff after spinoff. I'm sure we'll be featuring them a bunch in the coming years. I don't doubt it. And uh, thank you for that find and thank you for sharing. Oh, thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm so excited to share this one, especially as someone who has been a woman business owner. It's really hard. And thank goodness for programs to help minority and women owned small businesses, because that's what gives companies like Paragon a real leg up and a chance to compete against the bigger companies, the ones that have more of a track record. And look at what Paragon's doing now, because somebody gave them a chance partially because they were a woman owned business. That's a really special thing. For the first time, these businesses can actually compete against, you know, more traditional male-owned, lots of stockholders kinds of businesses. And that's a really exciting thing. We're going to see a lot more technology coming down the pike as we get more companies like that. Indeed. And with that, that's a perfect place to end this episode. And I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Jim McCulka. Always fun and always a little mind-bending here. Thanks a lot, sir. Yep, and thank you as well for joining us, Kat Robinson. Always a pleasure. And thank you for joining us, Cassie Tamanini. Great conversation as always. Thank you, everyone. And thank you for joining us, Mark Ratterman. See ya. <laughs> we will see you indeed. If you missed our IAC special episode, uh, that will be coming out very shortly, if it's not already out. And if you haven't listened to it, I think that's going to be a must-listen to. There's so much information. And we will be back the third week of this month in November, and we hope to have you with us then. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.